Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. Where we continue to follow the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden now. Those are just some of the scenes overnight as thousands of Americans gathered in celebration of Osama bin Laden's death. Former Navy SEAL Rob O'Neill says he has thought about the mission every day since that May Day in 2011. Multiple conversations you had with Rob O'Neill over the past year and a half. How'd you get And you described that his head kind of exploded yes. when you hit I, him. Yes, I actually hit him three times because I shot him twice when he was standing and once on the ground. That is the fucking American badass. Go, go, go. We are not going for fame and we are not going for bravado. We are going for the single mom who dropped her kids off at elementary school on a Tuesday morning and then 45 minutes later she jumped to her death out of a skyscraper. If you need help, hang up and then dial your operator. I'm Rob O'Neill, and this is the Operator Podcast. Welcome back to the Operator. I am Robert J. O'Neill, former Navy SEAL. And today I would like to talk about Afghanistan because we are so close to the, we're actually on the one year anniversary of the debacle of getting out of Afghanistan and. I had some time there. I want to talk about my time there, some stories about it, just to understand what it was like, what we could have done, what we did do, and things like that. I'm, I'm a big believer in life, and this is just good advice for a lot of stuff you're doing. It doesn't matter why we're here. We're just here. You know, you can learn about it from mistakes made, but get over it. Whatever it is, you got to get over it. We're just here. I talk about that when I... When I uh, speak to football teams, for example, it doesn't matter why it's second and 15. It just is. And the clock is ticking for all of us. What do we do now? The bin Laden raid, we did that same thing. The guys in my helicopter, the second helicopter, didn't know the first helicopter crashed in the front yard. And we were let out outside of the compound, figuring we're just going to have to breach one of the doors, which means, you know, get in. And we decided to use, um, we were going to use a charge of C6 on what we called the carport, a door that did open. We announced to the team that was already inside, but we didn't know it, that uh, we're going to blast the carport. And their response was simply, no, don't blast it, we'll open it. And it didn't make sense because we didn't know that they crashed. We didn't know that they were in there, but the door opened. And a glove that I recognized came out in the form of a thumbs up. And I remember thinking, it doesn't matter why they're in there. They're just in there. Clock's ticking. We'll talk about it later if we live. Talk about it in the debrief. And when you're debriefing, when you're talking about the stuff that happened, I never wanted to hear what you did well and how awesome you are. I want to hear what you fucked up. And you can learn from fucking up. And you should learn from it. And then you got to get over it. But... It doesn't matter why we're here, we're just here. And that's, that was the case with Afghanistan. It, it didn't matter why, but we just were. I could tell off the bat. I was, in, I was at SEAL Team 2 on 9-11. Uh, we all saw what happened. We just got attacked. The towers fell. We lost thousands of people. The Pentagon was hit. The brave Americans on United Flight 93 fought Al-Qaeda in a crash, saving the Pentagon. And initially, we named the mission to go kill al-Qaeda, Operation Infinite Justice. And President Bush at the time said something along the lines of, this crusade, this war on terror is going to take a while. And that became an issue because then we started worrying about using 
the words infinite justice along with the word crusade because of its history, we might offend some people. Now, we're talking about Al-Qaeda, that whether you like it or not, Al-Qaeda attacked the United States not just once, but the major attack was obviously 9-11 because of their religion, because Al-Qaeda is a, is a, a, a fringe section a radicalized section of Sunni Islam, and they declared war on us a long time ago with bin Laden in charge. Uh, but we're worried we might offend them. So we changed Operation Infinite Justice into Operation Enduring Freedom, which eventually became Operation Freedom Sentinel. And at first, when we went into Afghanistan, we crushed them because our job was to find bin Laden and kill him, find al-Qaeda and kill him. It was to stop the Taliban's support for al-Qaeda, which we could have done very, very easily, and uh, you know, kill the enemy, and then what should we have done after that? Probably just kept a small force there. You know, We eventually killed Osama bin Laden in Pakistan, which tells you we're not at war with Afghanistan, but we, just, we forgot who the enemy was right off the bat. And, and it was never to bring democracy or build roads in Afghanistan, which we certainly shouldn't be doing as a, as a military. Uh, and to you know to to set up schools for people who don't really want them and values that we don't understand. We don't really we never took the time to understand Afghanistan um, and the people there and what it happens. They, they, you know we'd been dealing with Afghanistan for a long, long time, but we weren't you know we weren't the first when when we helped the Mujahideen crazy enough fight the Russians. We were fir- we were first with Operation Cyclone. We were initially supplying the Mujahideen, the resistance, which was some, you know, Mujahideen fighters and and other factions fighting the invading Russians. And, you know, one of the reasons the Russians failed is because they occupied, which we didn't learn from, but they also tried to bring in communism, socialism, which you need to be an atheist to do all that stuff, Um, which, you know, we can get into later. But they, uh, we initially, we started in 1979 helping the Mujahideen fight the Russians and started with uh, Lee Enfield rifles, bolt action rifles, and we were giving them less than, I think in 1979, less than $700,000 a year. And then uh, it went up to twenty to $30 million a year. And then it was at $630 million a year, eventually when we, when we ran them out. And so we defeated the, no, we, the Afghans defeated the Russians there like they had defeated everyone else back to Alexander the Great way before, you know, way before we were even a country. But Afghanistan's been fighting in the same mountains. It's a very, very difficult place to fight. And I, like I mentioned that we killed um, Af- um, Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. Pakistan's right there too. And you got to understand when you're in that part of the world that Pakistan is essentially the center of the universe over there. And then you have the, uh, the Chinese influence, which, which is everywhere. You know, we've been dealing with China pretty much everywhere we go because they want to control everything. And Afghanistan is, was and still is a route, like the silk trading route, stuff like that, to get into the Western Asia and then into Europe. Uh, Pakistan is a unique place because we're always funding Pakistan and Pakistan is actually an acronym too. Everybody loves acronyms. Uh, Pakistan is an acronym that no one can even decide it is. I've heard it's, it's, uh, Pakistan stands for, uh, Punjab Arab Kurd Indian Stan, Pakistan or Punjab Afghan Kashmiri Islam Stan. Um, we, we can't do it. We love acronyms too. If you notice, uh, there's a lot of people out there that love to make acronyms and abbreviations for everything. And I'm bringing this up because it just came to my mind. I remember watching a young, not young, well, young, but a junior officer, a captain, a ranger captain was briefing um, a general when we were in Afghanistan. And he said, check this out. He was explaining to me as a, uh, 
as an enlisted guy, I guess that that if you say acronyms a bunch, especially with the army, nobody in the room is going to ask you what it means because nobody wants to be the guy that doesn't know what an acronym or an abbreviation is. So he came up with, uh, he said, I'm going to say SFA at least three times in this intimate briefing with the general, and I guarantee you nobody asked me what it means. And no one asked him what it meant. I was very impressed, and you know, they left and whatnot. And afterwards I asked him, what did, uh, what did that stand for? And he said, oh, SFA stands for stupid fucking acronym. So, but um, I mentioned that we're really good at fighting the enemy and killing the enemy. One thing we're good at, we're not good at studying history. And we're always really good at saying something along the lines of, this will be the next Vietnam. Which I remember when the war in Afghanistan started too, saying, stop saying that every time we do anything. We did it during Desert Shield. I remember when I was in high school. This is going to be the next Vietnam. And then obviously Afghanistan, even though we were attacked, this will be the next Vietnam. Which it actually turned out to be too, because if you look at the withdrawal, it was very similar to Vietnam. Uh, in, in Vietnam, we had the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, and they were in Cambodia and Laos, and we knew it. And we're sort of still attacking them there, but we're trying to build democracy and a relationship with South Vietnam so that we can eventually reunite them with North Vietnam and stop the spread of communism, which, you know, for some reason we hear that all the time. That's what we're doing, uh, supporting the military industrial complex and making sure we're spending all kinds of the taxpayers' money on stuff like that. We did the same thing in Afghanistan. We knew that the remnants of the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were over in Pakistan. And we were pretty good at drone strikes, and we had stuff on the, on the borders to try to find them. But we, you know, we knew where Ayman al-Zawahiri was pretty much in Qaeda, Pakistan, and really, really smart people knew where bin Laden was over in Abbottabad, Pakistan, which, which itself is a good story because you'll hear, I'm kind of jumping all around here, you'll, you'll hear, hear stories about like the body double, Bin Laden or how Bin Laden died in 2001 or whatever and he had kidney failure and he was on dialysis and all that stuff and and people don't realize that's that was actually counterterrorism and that was counterintelligence because Bin Laden never had a dialysis machine but we told everyone that he did so that I don't know if you know this but but people will lie to you when sources would come to certain places certain case officers they would say I definitely saw Bin Laden because I saw the dialysis, so pay me. But they were not realizing there is no dialysis because we made it up because dumb people like you would uh, say that. And that's also um, what conspiracy theorists say now. There was no dialysis. They even tell me sometimes that I shot a body double in, uh, in Afghanistan. Like, it wasn't really Bin Laden. Because I say, well, who did I shoot behind Amal Bin Laden in Bin Laden's bedroom? I either shot Bin Laden or someone that's fucking Bin Laden's wife. And either way, that guy had it coming. So, uh, um, but it was in Pakistan. It was never in Afghanistan. And, and we were not designed to, you know, we, we were designed to crush militaries. World War I, World War II. And then around Korea, then Vietnam, we just, we, we, we would stall into things. Like Bagram Airfield is a prime example where you just kind of get the, self-licking ice cream cone. It's there to support it. We should have gone in and gotten out. But that's neither here nor there. And then, and then uh, when it first started, the war in Afghanistan, and I wasn't there yet, but the invasion, the guys on the horses, which were complete stud green berets, the CIA, and the bombings, they were kicking their ass. They kicked their ass at Tora Bora. And I wasn't there, but I'd love to talk about Tora Bora at some point if I can interview somebody that was on that. They were to the point where bin Laden was even saying that uh, he, over the radio he was apologizing to his guys for getting him into this mess. They're going to go see Allah because paradise is, is their end goal. 
but they kicked their asses there. Operation Anaconda, which was a, a just a, a, a real fight where Americans started to realize that fighting, especially Afghans in the mountains, is going to be really, really difficult. And we did get into that. I wasn't there yet, but I heard stories, the brave story of, of Neil Roberts on Roberts Ridge, of um, Chappie and, and Slab going back up, um, intense fights. Uh, I wasn't there, but just brave, brave guys fighting. A horrific enemy, uh, and you know, get, getting the job done inevitably. We did lose some people, and you know, even when you know, now we realize that we have to fight a war, and how do we get acclimated? Because we're in the Western Himalayas now. This is some serious stuff. I'm from Montana, and I've never seen mountains like this before. I've I've hunted in Alaska. It's close, but the Himalayas are different, and that is what we saw in 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 Afghanistan. And it's it's going to be a long fight. However. When we got there, we should have crushed them. And the, what I really believe, and again, you know, we didn't do it. We should learn from it. We should have gone in there, kicked their asses like we did, and then say, no, don't ever do this again. And you do need to realize that it's going to be taken over again by warlords. Like Goblin and Hekmatyar is still there. Um, and he kind of sat it out. He was one of our friends fighting the Soviets. He's one of the enemies fighting against us when we're the occupiers. Among people that didn't even know that we were Americans. They didn't know why we were there. Some people were told that we were in Afghanistan because it was a direct... Uh, the, the attack in New York on 9-11 was a direct response to us invading Afghanistan, which we never did. But that's the way people think. We should have crushed them and then left, but we didn't. We started to um, try to rebuild Afghanistan... We tried to enforce democracy. We put Hamid Karzai in there. We weren't smart about the corruption that was going to happen. We didn't understand the politics. We didn't understand the, the tribes. We didn't understand how it worked, essentially. So we stayed. And at first it wasn't too bad because a lot of the people conducting the war on the ground really knew what they were doing. We had the best that the CIA had to offer. They knew about Afghanistan for a long time. We've got great agents looking at all kinds of places all over the world, and they were focused on Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan as soon as 9-11 happened. So they were starting to make their moves there. You know, They were probably the first ones there along with the horse soldiers from um, the Green Berets that went over there and started using the Air Force, our air power, to kick their asses. And, and what they did along with the Green Berets, along with Delta and then us, the Tier 1 operators, on, at first, I wasn't there, they started setting up spots on the border of Afghanistan, being smart enough to realize that we had them, but we lost them. Let's learn from it. They moved into Pakistan, which is just what they do. So they set up places along the border, different spots, a place in Kabul where, you know, you can meet people, hire people, talk to people that know people, gather intelligence, human intelligence, you know, however you can by talking to sources, finding sources, paying people because money works. People do want to work for money. They want to support their families. And then finding out where some targets are in Pakistan uh, before they... Um, start to realize that we're going to start stepping on our own dicks with rules of engagement. The rules of engagement at first were good. When we first, especially when we first started, as, as bad as it sounds, as morbid as it sounds, they would give us, there was a certain amount of non-combatants that could be killed in a strike or could be killed on target that was acceptable as long as you killed the bad guy. And I know it sounds bad, but that was really good for a lot of tier one operators. Um, for myself too, you know, I've been in some weird fights before, but I have seen my guys perform and we are the good guys. And we're not there to just murder people. I know I've heard stories before of people just trying to get their body count up and not the body count that they use today on college campuses. I'm talking about body count where you're shooting motherfuckers. 
but um, no, nobody was really doing that. We were the we were the good guys, and as long as we had that latitude, we were good. Because you're going to be able to work harder if you know someone is going to have your back. If someone up the chain is going to have your back, if something goes sideways, it's going to be good. Not just looking for you, waiting for an excuse to prosecute you because they might make a, a bigger rank. So the ROEs were really good, but I mean, they eventually got bad. I remember when I was leaving, there was a fight where we were engaged in, in, a, in a tree line, and the bad guys ran into a cave... And we're not going to enter the cave because you're getting – that's the old bait and switch. They're trying to pull you in the only entrance to a cave, and they're going to they're gonna shoot it out with you. And we can't clear it with a flamethrower because, you know, we're not allowed to use them. Boring. That would be a great way to clear a cave. But, you know, I wouldn't want to hump a uh, um, flamethrower up those hills anyway. But we we're trying to call air support. So what you want to do is call in uh, – if you have an Apache, call in Hellfires. If you got DAPs or a gunship, something like that. And we were told by someone who's 500 miles away that we can't – do that to the cave because we're not saying there are women and children in the cave. We're just saying we can't prove that there aren't women and children in the cave, which is ridiculous. If you got, you've got someone that's not even on the ground telling you what you can and can't do, that's how you're going to start losing. That's how you're going to start second-guessing yourself. And if, if you second-guess yourself, especially in a gunfight, that's a time where you could take a bullet to the face. And the problem is a bullet and a bomb, they really only need to be right once. So that's an issue. The rules of engagement eventually became an issue. But we started off in a, good, in a good place, putting people on the border, concentrating on the locals, trying to build um, an intelligence web, and then prosecute targets in Afghanistan. And that's good. That's a good thing that we can do. Not a big footprint. We'll eventually be seen as occupiers, but not right off the bat, because the locals are happy that we're there. They were, they were ruled under an iron fist by the Taliban, who it turns out are not good people. The women can't go to school. The girls can't go to school. And when I say that, I don't mean they can't, you know, they, they can't leave the house. They sit in a corner. And it's not like they're sitting in a corner in your house playing PlayStation, looking at TV. They're sitting basically in solitary confinement with their family, waiting to be sold off to a neighbor who can afford to buy a wife at whatever age. Not a good place. But when we came in and we took the Taliban out, now... They can, they can listen to music, which is, which is weird if you're celebrating the fact that you can listen to music. And, oh, by the way, you should hear their music. Horrible. But they like it. And uh, so they listen to their music, and they get to shave their beards because they, they need to shave. They need to grow beards under the Taliban, and a lot of guys didn't like the beards. Um, so, but they were shaving them off. They did like us at the time, and, and we were doing okay in Afghanistan, and we're still semi-focused on the mission to kill Osama bin Laden, but it just started to build from there. And you can tell when that started to shift because in a war like that, I personally think that you have a golden hour to defeat the enemy. There is a spot where you have support. We had support around the world. We had support in Afghanistan from the locals, which you really, really need. If, you, if you're going to get good intelligence, you need good people that are giving you information. Even if you're paying for it, I don't really care. As long as it's right, we can defeat him. But we screwed it up because people in Washington decided we can use 9-11 to fight anywhere. And I'm convinced even two months after the towers fell. I mean, Ground Zero is still on fire. I'm convinced, and I've talked to people that said there are already rumblings of justifying an invasion of Iraq. And that almost reminds me of what happened back in the day in Russia 
where one of the communist leaders said, show me the man and I'll show you the crime. And that's sort of what happened here because if you recall, President George W. Bush had a personal issue with Saddam Hussein, who was then the president, the dictator of Iraq, because his father, President George H.W. Bush, liberated Kuwait when Saddam Hussein took it over because of oil. If you can imagine people fight over there over oil, craziness. It's almost like it's personal power and money. But we liberated, we went into Saudi Arabia, Operation Desert Shield, which is actually another reason bin Laden really hated us because he thought he could bring his Mujahideen that we funded in Afghanistan to fight against um, Saddam to, to keep them out of Saudi Arabia, basically. But we brought our guys in. That's actually another story that will tell how they um, declared war on us. We sent um, American force across the border, tanks, Air Force, crushed them in a matter of days, sent some troops in, and then liberated Kuwait. We did tell the Shiites, the Shia in Iraq, that we will follow you to Baghdad and take over, and we will topple Saddam Hussein, and then it'll be fine. But we did ditch the Shia because you know we fought the way we should, and then we left, which another questionable call, which will be, would be another a great uh, thing to talk about in the future. We left. Saddam Hussein stayed in power, and he did massacre a lot of Shia, unrest in Iraq, but he was pissed off. He, being Saddam Hussein, was angry at George H.W. Bush, and uh, he attempted to kill him. He wanted to kill him. He was on a hit list. Moving forward, that pissed off George W. Bush. He took it personally. Now we can invade Iraq. We just need a reason. And so he had people searching for weapons of mass destruction, which Saddam Hussein had. I mean, he had, he'd used gas before in the north on the Kurds. He'd gas people, which and, and, and a lot of those gases are weapons of mass destruction. Did he have nukes? Did he have uh, stuff coming in from... Uh, Africa, um, the yellow cake, whatever they were talking about. Again, he's got to have them, so find it. So they tried to find it. Dick Cheney, meanwhile, is licking his chops because he's rolling with Halliburton, and he knows if we can do an invasion of Iraq, Halliburton can be everywhere. He can make a bunch of money. Dick Cheney's a funny one to bring up, too, because uh, you know he, he, he made a, a lot of money bankrolling off of the war in Iraq, and I always tell people that he and I have a we have something not in common because he completely skipped the war in Vietnam when it was his era because he said he had better things to do. I did go to war. But what Dick Cheney and I have in common is we've both shot someone in the face. So so there's that. But then George W. Bush wants to go to war. Uh, he's just a, I hate it in Washington. They always say, well, that guy's a war hawk. He's a war hawk. This guy's a war hawk, even though he, he you know, he wears a suit and tie to dinner and he wakes up and puts one on and walks around uh, the, you know, Capitol Hill. He's not a war hawk. He likes war because he's profiting off it. He's part of the military industrial <laughs> complex. But George Bush, George W. Bush was a war hawk. He really wanted a war in Iraq. And I remember back in the day they, they were saying that George Bush was a draft dodger, which is not the case at all because during Vietnam, he did get into the National Guard and people say that's a way of getting out. But me being an optimist, he didn't, he didn't go to Vietnam, but he sure kept the Viet Cong out of Texas. So job well done there. But we, in, we invaded Iraq and took the ball off of Afghanistan. And that's the start of, um, of the chaos. Well, I mean, it, it wasn't chaos off the bat. It was just, uh, it was new. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I had done eight years at mainly SEAL Team 2, but SEAL Team 4. 
but I'd never really been to war. I'd done a couple things here and there, but never went to war. And now I'm going to go to war. I'm at SEAL Team 6. We're going to head over there. And uh, I, I actually had my 29th birthday in Jalalabad, Afghanistan. But my, my, So that was my first trip to Afghanistan. And I'll remember going over because it's, it's, I'm a big believer that it's, it's easier to go to war than to watch war, to send someone to war. And that's why I think the families, even though we do acknowledge them, they don't get enough credit. Loved ones don't get enough credit for post-traumatic, sympathetic post-traumatic stress because they're wondering the entire time what's happening and wondering how bad it is. It's easier if you're there because, like watching a horror movie when you're yelling at the screen, at least I do, you know, to don't go in there or don't go down. You know, why the white people always go down to the the basement? I'll, I'll never know or hide behind the chainsaws. Um, you can you can yell it at the screen, but if you're actually there, you you can make that decision. You can go this way. You can dodge that. But uh, I had not been to Afghanistan, and so I assumed that we were going to be fighting. But like I said, I'm about to turn 29, and I'm ready to fight. Uh, I still got, uh, I'm still amped up because of what happened. On 9-11, I'm ready to fight. We're going to Afghanistan. There are going to be suicide bombers and the like, but I want to fight. And my like, I'm older and you know more experienced now, and I've seen it. And I, I've seen war for what it's worth. I've seen some of the reasons th- certain things happen. I mentioned the profiteering and what happens in the Beltway, what happens with the um, politicians and the uh, and the lobbyists on Capitol Hill, and how they make the money, the attorneys, but. Going to war now. I'm I'm talking at this point. I am red, white, and blue. I am the American flag. I am apple pie. I am so ready to kill. Like I'm the dude in a restaurant in Boston with a tank of live lobsters, and I will throw anybody's ass in a fucking boiling pot. Let's fucking do this. So we fly over in a C-17. Stop in, um, you know, flew over to Germany. Whatever. Went to the USO, got some shitty coffee, which I love because I am Navy. Then over to Bagram. We flew into Bagram, got off in Bagram Airfield, and we're going to do a quick turnover. So the whole crew is on a C-17, and um, we stay on the airfield, and I'm looking around. We're, We're unloading whatever gear we had. There's four of us going to Jalalabad where some operators had purchased a hotel, a small hotel, like a, um, a two-story little bitty with a, with a courtyard and a, a fence around it. Um, we're waiting for our stuff off the C-17 to load onto a C- C-130, but we're looking around at the mountains. It's very, very impressive. You can see, see the mountains around Bagram Airfield, sort of Bagram Airfield. They're kind of building it up. It's 2005. Then we fly down to Jalalabad where we get a quick turnover. We flew in at night. The dudes from Gold Team that had been running the outstation uh we're doing a turnover with and it was always a fun thing doing with a turnover with gold team every 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 squadron we called them teams at the time red team gold team uh, blue team silver wasn't around yet but we would uh, call each other teams we had reputations for uh turnover and one of the things like gold team really didn't clean up for you there would be spitters everywhere you have to clean up your room. They were nice enough to leave porn, but they also, for some reason, they would leave behind dive socks that you could throw against a wall and would fucking shatter. I don't know why. Uh, but anyway, we, we met Gold Team on the airfield, the one that the Russians built in Jalalabad. They, we literally high-fived it. They told us a couple things where things were whatever uh, at the safe house. And then I met one of my interpreters, Larry. We got into an unarmored Hilux, a Toyota Hilux truck, and then we drove uh, through town at night. I realized how, you know, we're, we're there to 
um, do whatever we do. The roads are shit. No one's outside. They'd already had evening prayer, and they go to they go to sleep. It's it's a ghost town. But I'm looking around. There's a little bit of electricity, and um, you know we go to the center of Jalalabad, Afghanistan. There's a globe in this roundabout. I love the the roundabout in Jalalabad. There's a globe in the middle of it, which is sort of famous. You can look it up. I, I got I'll, I'll post it. I've got a picture of me in a shirt from Chili's, like a Chili shirt, no body armor, and a gun because I wanted to get a picture with our crew in front of the. Um, the globe. We went down a, th- a thing called Chocolate Alley, which is this alleyway, and it's called Chocolate Alley because the kids there know that if Americans come by, they're going to give out chocolate, and they can say chocolate turned into Chocolate Alley. A lot of people have been there. And then we roll up to the safe house. As you go down Chocolate Alley, we open a gate. Ours is to the left. There's another one to the right, and it's kind of like a, a residential neighborhood for Afghanistan. Uh, Jabad was um, Jalalabad was a major city, still is a major city, and they had been building it up since they bought it um and we had rooms we i split up we split up rooms the two senior guys there was a team leader another senior operator from red and then me and me and jody were new guys and he was our eod guy explosive ordnance disposal i thought we'd have a, a busy time there he and i shared a room uh which is a lot of fun you know we shared a room we had a tv and we set up a playstation and then you know get in there get kind of a quick tour, and then get some food. We walked across the alley. Across the alley was a, was a CIA place, and they had a nice built-up area. They get, a, they get really good funding. They've, they've taken advantage of that as far as uh, they're smart about their budgets. You need to spend a certain amount of money because we're going to get the same budget again or bigger. Uh, you know, never, never, um, make, never say your budget went lower because you won't get the money from, from, uh, from Washington. They don't give a shit because they're not spending their money. They're spending the taxpayers' money. So that was pretty nice. The cooks were over there, local cooks. They made lo- local food, which is awesome. A lot, some of the best rice in the world is over there. Uh, really good rice, excellent bread. Um, don't watch them make the bread, and I, I mentioned this before, and I will again. We would call it the Harry Hobbit foot bread. You know, they make the bread with their feet. It's pretty gross. I mean, feet are gross. I don't give a shit where you're from. Feet are fucking gross. And if, especially if you're making my bread with it. So don't don't watch them <laughs> make the bread, but eat it because it's really good. Rice and then some sort of meat. Sometimes it was goat, which they, they, they would cook in a hole, but it was incredible. And next to the the agency guys were uh, with the Green Berets. They were there. There was an A-team. And we got to know them pretty well. That was my first real experience working very close with, uh, with Green Berets. And they're awesome dudes. Solid dudes. And you're going to find that too because you hear about the uh, rivalries, inter-service rivalries, and I learned eventually that it's it's just a matter of where you choose, where you where you go. Like you join the army, now you're going to do this, and a lot of guys want to be Rangers, Green Berets. A lot of guys want to go to Delta, and they do. You join the Marine Corps because you always wanted to be a Marine. You get into reconnaissance if you want to, and then like force reconnaissance, and then there's other shit that they're really building up. The Marines had a problem for a while because they would get lulled into the whole. Um, well, you know, the the, the military was going to give them a budget, but just for your special forces. And they said, well, all Marines are special forces, which fine, believe that, but you're going to keep using shitty weapons until you give us your, your really good guys. And they eventually did uh, picked them out of the reconnaissance guys. Um, that and again, a different story. I'd love to interview some guys about that. And then, you know, Navy, Navy SEALs, um, Air Force, pararescue and PJs, but we're all pretty much the same. Uh, like I said, we set up our places. I did learn there is a very elite group in the special forces as far as video games and they're called army rangers uh i learned how to play halo 3 
there in Iraq, and I thought I got good at it, but those fucking Rangers can play the shit out of some video games. They're a lot like the the kids that uh, play Call of Duty and can teach you more. Me personally, they can teach me more about sniper rifles than I ever knew. No more about ballistics because of that fucking game. And people ask me why I don't play uh, online because I don't feel like getting my ass kicked by an eight year old, which which would happen. But that was our safe house setup. We had our room. We had a we had a a common area like a courtyard, and we would have people over there. A fire pit a picnic table to play poker and whatnot, or just hang out because it's, it's April, it's hot, it gets, it's going to get hotter, but we chill out there. And then I kind of wanted to learn what we do. We had, a, we had our own gym sort of in one of the suites that used to be, if you can call it a suite in Afghanistan, so like a treadmill and elliptical and some weights and stuff like that. And then you had pull-up bars outside, whatever you want to do. People brought pads, you can hit pads. You have your, uh, you know, you can, you can, um, Go out there and box a heavy bag, whatnot. Um, but I wanted to learn what the hell we were doing. The team leader there was an experienced guy. He was the master breacher, actually, at Red Squadron. And he was a team leader. And then he was our team leader in Jalalabad. And I didn't know. It's like, well, okay, so what are we doing here? Because there's not really a war. There are people out in town. We can go visit them. You know, we had motorbikes. Uh, we would ride those out in town, which is unheard of now. But the the locals liked us. The we're living next to families. The women didn't necessarily need to wear burkas, but they would, just because uh, uh, you know they didn't want it to dishonor their husband, whatever the reason is for wearing their burkas. But they would. But they they liked the fact that we were there. They liked the fact that they could get educated. If 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 their kids wanted to learn something, we could teach them. We could bring them over. If something bad happened, like a, I saw it happen where um you know a kid burned himself in boiling water, they could bring him over to our corpsman. And he could fix them. The, the PJ could fix them if he was in town. Stuff like that. And we had an operations center. Every day the team leader would go over to the agency and they would share intelligence. What, what did you hear from so-and-so? What did this source say? Where are we going to send this source? So you just send guys out in town. Get the, the, get the, the lay of the land. Try to find out what's happening. And then try to build a target set. Try to, try to build different targets of people that we want to get. Try to find out if they're Al-Qaeda. Try to find out if they're Taliban, if they were former Taliban, if they're just opportun- opportunists, if they're just doing bad stuff and people want us to go talk to them, go arrest them, uh, get into a building and find out what you can do. And that was pretty much it. Um, and you would build these packages so you could send them to, at the time, we had most of our guys up in Bagram on the on the airfield. And so the majority of the of the team, the assault team, was in Bagram, and you know they got their kick-ass gym up there. <laughs> Bagram is slowly building itself into the Death Star, is what we called it. But we're building stuff, and occasionally, we would request a team from Bagram to come down, and we had different birthing areas where we could keep them, and we would try to hit target sets, and that's pretty much it. So, in between trying to build target sets, getting my ass kicked at Halo, playing um, Grand Theft Auto, which which is a great game, still is, um, and then we would watch The Shield. Because, you know, we'd have to have family night. We're there. We're all there. We're not leaving, so we might as well have some fun. We started watching The Shield. I learned who Vic Mackey was. And for the younger people listening to this, if you've never seen The Shield, just watch The Shield. It's, uh, it, it describes so much. It, it, it describes the means to an end of some guys going through a door and kicking your ass, but it also shows a little bit of the corruption, a little bit of the stuff that goes on the side. At the time, I wanted to believe that you know nobody's that corrupt nobody does that nobody takes you know shaves a little bit off the end and keeps it for themselves to buy a boat but anyway the shield is really good and we would watch that and then we would try to um build up targets and we're also working with our CIA counterparts who would who were running um a counter 
terrorist team. We call them the counter-terror pursuit team or the CTPT because you got to have your abbreviation so that you can brief it on PowerPoint and have someone not ask you what the fuck that stands for. But the CTPT was a grouping run, paramilitary, that were being paid really, really well by the agency. And it was great at first because you get people that are working for you that are supposedly the best that they have, and they're making a lot of good money, which if you look down the long, the long haul, if we're paying these guys a lot of money and they're used to it and they like it and they're feeding their family, what happens when we leave and stop paying them? And they've, uh, they've learned our tactics and they like the money and Haqqani Network and Taliban are going to have money. What happens when they take our tactics to them, the Taliban? And uh, the answer was simply, oh, they won't. Yeah. They won't, but what if they do? Well, they won't. Okay, fine. So we keep training them. And the CTPT was being trained by former SF, by former um, Navy SEALs were there. And uh, they, you know, they were running the show. And I remember one time, me being new to Afghanistan, uh, they said they were having a graduation and then there was going to be a ceremony, which meant you're going to sit around on rugs and you're going to eat uh, rice. And it's, you know, you sit around and you eat rice out of the same bowl. Make sure you use your right hand, not your left hand. Because some cultures are just different. And some cultures don't have toilet paper. And everyone, most everyone has a left hand. I'll let you figure that one out. So eat it with your right hand. Uh, I was going to take the Hilux with one of my buddies, with Jody. We're going to go over there. Uh, and we went into the team leader. He was in the, the main room of, the, of the, the safe house watching the shield. And we had one computer, whatever, uh, for, for, for um, emailing home. He was in there. And I said, hey, we're going to go to the... Uh, we're going to go to the ceremony and to the dinner tonight over with the CTPT and the, uh, the agency guys. You want to come? And he said, uh, no, I'm good, man. My, uh, my, my uh, man dance meter is pegged. His man dance meter is pegged, <laughs> meaning he's seen it before. I didn't know what that meant, a man dance, huh? And that's what they have. You, you, we went over there. I thought maybe, you know, we, you know, we have our um, – I'm bringing a pistol. I got, a, I got my M4 at the time. Uh, I'm, I'll be safe over there. And yeah, they they had their ceremony earlier that day where they graduated. They're officially CTPT. Then they have someone cook. And uh, there was man dance, which means all dudes come in and they're playing this crappy, crappy music. And then the men start dancing. And then some of the agency guys hopped in and they're all dancing. <clears throat> and that was their celebration because they're still in the culture where the women aren't really allowed. So the men are dancing. And that was a man dance. So that was that was my experience with that. And I went back and I told the team that he was correct. So man dances were not really my thing. That's what they did. And then, we're, so we're building targets and we're using this new technology. We had some guys there and I'm not, I mean, everybody knows that we do track stuff. And I don't care what I say, people will not stop using their phones. If I told somebody right now, I'm going to find you because of your iPhone because you can't stop checking Instagram. You still wouldn't stop checking Instagram. You can't help yourself. So we're tracking these phones, and we flew some dudes down. And uh, we, flew some, we, we flew some guys from, from the squadron down from Bagram. They stayed with us, and, and we're getting pings on these, on these phones. And I'm excited because this is going to be my first mission. We're going to go out at night in our Hiluxes now and our murder van. We had a murder van, a van that we just keep our shit inside. And at the time, it's, a, you know, it's not like the shit they have now. We've got a big computer. It tells us where they are. We put the CTPT out in town, and we're going to roll out in town. And uh, we're going to find the house where it is. 
um, you know, we roll up and there's uh, we're, we're driving through a town. I'm talking to three blocks away from our safe house. Get out of our vehicle this night. We're kind of walking around. And this is one of my first experiences with how you get good at stuff. Because I'm wearing my full body armor. I got the plates everywhere I can handle them. I'm, I'm looking around. I'm wasting energy. Got my, my nods and my helmet on. I look over at my boss who's, who's, who's got experience in combat. And he's not worried. He's not concerned. He's not wasting energy. And he's being cool because he's been there before. And he realized he doesn't need to worry about everything. And I remember looking at him and thinking, boy, he's cool. I just, I, one day I want to be cool like that. Just from watch, watching you know, one, of my, one of my bosses. I just want to be cool. He wasn't worried about everything because there was no point in being worried about it. And we, we, tracked, uh, we tracked down the house we wanted to go into. There was a guy inside who was supposedly Al-Qaeda. He's behind a locked door. And uh, they asked me to um, set a breach. So I'm the breacher. I'm going to go to this locked door, and I'm going to use one of the little 18-inch strip charges, a small charge. They still make a lot of noise, but it's just a pushing charge. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to push this thing off the door because uh, it's not a big lock. And uh, I, I'm going to set it up, and I'm looking back for the thumbs up. And uh, uh, I asked basically for permission, and he said, "Give it a second. And I wondered why he wanted me to give it a second. We looked down the the alleyway, and there's a dude walking up who has nothing to do with it. Does he's not armed? He's walking, and he's kind of like. Now, so I set it, I hit it, it's got a, it's got a, uh, it's got a, a delay where you snap it and then you got a couple of seconds before it blows off, but it flashes. So I flash it and that immediately makes the guy look right at it. Now, next to me is, uh, well, it's a sewage ditch. They have outdoor plumbing. And I wondered why he made, he made me wait for that, but we flash that off. And then the guy looks at it, blows, and I hear the guy yelling something like, Allah, 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 Allah. And I sort of laughed because we scared him, and I ended up stepping in this human feces, which was horrifying. But now I'm on my first mission. And I walked in, and I, at first I was amazed that everyone outside is, outside is asleep because it's hot outside. They're sleeping outside. They sleep through bombs over there, which is crazy. Uh, they slept. We're waking people up. There's not a gunfight. Well, we do find the guy who is an, uh, a heavy set. Uh, Arab. He's from Saudi Arabia. And if you're in Afghanistan and you run into an Arab, they're not there to teach English. They're there for bad reasons. So this guy is, uh, he's a bad guy. It's my first bad guy to see, but he's not a threat. We're just going to cuff him. I'm going to in- interrogate him a little bit with my interpreter. I'm, I'm at the point now, I'm brand new to this war. I'm learning the interrogation tactics, which we do get better at eventually, but I'm interrogating this guy. And I don't think he speaks really good English because I'm, I'm, um, using an interpreter who doesn't really speak good Arabic. This guy speaks shitty posture. But I look down, and this dude is wearing a shirt. And I don't think he knows what it says. But it's a big T-shirt, and this is a big dude. And uh, all his T-shirt says is, it's not a beer belly. It's a fuel tank for a sex machine. And that's pretty much it. We rolled him up and took him to the airfield, and he flew to Bagram. I don't know what happened to him, but that's my first combat experience with a fat guy from Saudi Arabia and a kick-ass T-shirt that I hope he still has. Yeah, so that's the first mission in Afghanistan. Uh, watching my boss, reali- realizing how cool he was, I want to be that cool, so it kind of took an edge off. We, we would run into dudes out in town uh, walking the streets, and they had AKs, but they weren't necessarily bad guys. And you would sort of deconflict with them, say something that you knew in uh, in their language. I believe something like uh, "Lasuna Court." Um, what is it? "Lasuna Portaka," bitch, which is something along the lines of "Put your hands up." But you realize they're uh, either local military or people defending their families. Not everyone's a bad guy. You can talk your way out of it, but you know, don't get complacent with that shit. Bad things can happen. 
But I got more comfortable with it. We had guys from the assault team. We started calling ourselves the strike team because now we're watching the Shield. We're big into Vic Mackey, season three, whatnot, and all that good stuff. Uh, guys go back and forth. We would tell them to watch the Shield so every time anyone from Bagram came down, they knew what we were doing. They could catch up, and we could talk about that. We had a mission at the Spingar Hotel one time, daytime mission, where we're going to take some local um, – a police with us because we heard there were two Al Qaeda guys in town staying at the Spingar, which is a hotel. There's a there's a sign out front with an AK-47 without a pistol grip, um, and a big X on it. So that's a gun free zone. So that's Afghanistan in a gun free zone. And I'm thinking, shit, why don't we just put that everywhere in the whole fucking war? But in the Spingar hotel, there's these um, there's two dudes up there, and we're gonna roll into the daytime because we think their chances are they're on opium. They're gonna be sleeping. We're gonna roll up quickly. We take it down. And there's two dudes in there, and they, they were smart enough. They had shit out in the in the trees or whatever. They hit it, They didn't have it in the room with them. So we have these two dudes. We're like, well, we didn't bust them. They're definitely Al Qaeda, but we we should roll them up. But let's have a little fun with them. Let's 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 train with our some some of our new gear because war is really good training. And we had these new listening devices that we can put in the room, and then we can leave the room and listen to you. So we did as we're talking to these two dudes. We have uh, one of our uh, one of our specialty guys, one of our smart guys, put a listening device in the room. They didn't notice. And so then we tell the guys through the interpreter, all right, um, we're going to leave right now because we're not sure what to do with you. So you guys stay in here. But there's one thing, no talking, which is the classic uh, move. Whatever. So anyway, they're going to talk when we leave. We all leave, but we have our interpreter who's listening to the stay behind device. And we're watching our turp listen to it. And all of a sudden, he starts laughing. And uh, I said, well, what are you, um, what's so funny? What are you laughing about? And he goes, these guys are so damn dumb. One of them said, okay, we're busted. They definitely are going to find our stuff. We got to do something quick. You choke me to death, and then I'll choke you to death. And the other guy looked at him and said, well, that won't work. <laughs> they were going to martyr themselves, but apparently if you're choked to death, you can't choke the other guy out. So that was the, uh, the Spingar Hotel. I mentioned the airfield. We would go back and forth to the airfield. That's where the, uh, the Rangers were working, the, the, the uh, Ranger snipers. Great fucking dudes. They lived at the airfield. We would drive our motorbikes over there to see them. Um, discuss intel, different missions that we could do with them. But then we're doing other stuff too. Like we, you know, like I said, we'd go out in town. We'd bring vendors on to bring stuff. Want to buy their rugs? You can get good prices because we're negotiating prices. You learn how to barter a little bit, dealing with the locals, and that's the hearts and minds thing. You know, if you buy something from them that they made, they get money. They can bring it back. They can afford food. They can buy more product. Typical economic stuff. Um, we had a um, we spent Memorial Day there, and we had a, a 5K, which is which is cool. We do a 5K run, people racing each other. You know, Rangers and Green Berets and guys running. We had for some reason the Rangers did uh, they ran it in gas masks. I don't know why they love punishing each other continuously, but they were doing that, uh, and that was like that's just sort of what was going on in uh, in Afghanistan. And guys are sort of getting used to it. We're you know we, we haven't had a big footprint yet. And uh, it would have been fine if we kept it that way, but we kept building up. And, and if you notice, when we were building up, we weren't building structures. We're, we're, building with, um, we're building with plywood. We're building temporary structures, which means we're not going to stay, but we, we kept building. Uh, we, you know, we had great guys in charge. Uh, the guy that was running it, um, running JSOC at the time, was uh, General McChrystal. And uh, just a solid dude, smart as hell, tactician. He, you know, he was obviously deeply involved with Afghanistan and Iraq, and he was the reason that we could have won a lot of places if we would have just been doing what he did. He, he landed at a point um, one day at Jalalabad. The, the airfield was so old when we were there, and it built up eventually. I'll get into that. 
um, where we would go out there at night because the C one thirty wants to land at night, and we'd put a red uh, we put a red light, a big red light, and then a green light, one on each end of the uh, the runway, depending on the wind, so the pilot could see it, knowing that green means show up and red means stop. But um, McChrystal showed up one day in the daytime, and I, here's how naive I was. I knew that the general was coming, but I didn't know it was McChrystal for some weird reason. I wasn't paying attention. The general's coming. That's fine. So we went out there, and they're, they're, in, they're in camis, but there's no rank. There's no name or anything because we're in Jalalabad, and I have a Hilux, one of those Toyota trucks, and I pull up. The C-130's there, and the C-130 would always run, so it's loud, whatever. It's chaotic. The general's got this... Um, entourage with him i got a truck with room for one he hops in mine and i just think it's one of the entourage and we take off i'm driving to jbad and he starts talking to me now i'm sitting there he, he said hey i'm stan i said, like, hey stan i'm rob i don't know it's general mccrystal hi i'm rob stan he goes well how's the war effort so far and i'm like well this is fucked up and this is fucked up blah blah fucking blah and i'm doing the typical enlisted bullshit i'm a i'm an e6 i'm telling him what's what not realizing this is general mccrystal we drive the 20 minutes back to the safe house. The cars are trying to catch us because I have the general. We pull into the safe house. The door opens. We get out. He gets out. And then um, the other cars pull in. They all surround him and realize, oh, shit. That's him. So I, I kind of walked up to him and said, uh, General, I am sorry. about." And he said, didn't I tell you to call me Stan? I was like, okay, whatever. So they go in the safe house. He gets briefed. I stay out because I'm a little embarrassed. And I'm pretty sure I ran into him a few years later in Iraq when he was running the Iraq war in the talk at, at uh, Baghdad International Airport. I was like, hey, General McChrystal, how you doing? And he said, uh, I thought I told you to call me Stan. <laughs> Something like that. Just a, a brilliant guy because you got to figure how many people does a general meet on a given day? A lot. Why would he remember me? Because one place I have a big beard uh, the other place I don't have a beard, obviously still gorgeous. That must have must have been it. But uh, that you know, he was running the show. It's a small place, and then and then we started messing with each other because we had we had our safe house in Jalalabad. We had the one up in Asadabad, which is up the road, which was safe to drive at the time. Uh, it's not now, and it wasn't for a while. But it connected uh, Jalalabad and Asadabad. You got the river on the side, the Konar River, which used to be actually a resort destination. Afghanistan's been through a lot. They've been fighting a long time, and they don't really know peace, but it used to be a good spot, especially in the 70s. But, like, we had a dude up there, and I'm a big believer in never, um, you never give yourself a nickname. And if something bothers you, you never tell people that it bothers you, because guess what? That's your nickname. But uh, this is all in the, uh, when you go up out of, uh, out of Jalalabad, you get into the Konar province, which is pretty famous. And it's a shithole um, if you're not from there, um, I guess. But we had a guy, so he's in the, he's in the Konar province. And um, we, were, we were up there talking about something. And he decided he was going to give himself a nickname. And uh, he said, we said something to him about some intel. We drove up there out of boredom. We're just going to hang out and do whatever. Maybe they have some extra whiskey. I don't know. And uh, he said, yeah, they've given me, a, uh, they've give, the locals have given me a nickname, which they didn't. They don't do that shit. Well, this is not Vietnam where we're the men with green faces, which is an awesome nickname. Because in Vietnam, they said the men with green faces, and if they show up for you, you're never going to see your family again. That's badass. And those fucking dudes were studs. Not that this guy wasn't a stud, but he said, uh, yeah, they, um, they started calling me the green-eyed ghost of the Konar. And I looked at him and said, oh, my God, you're such a green-eyed dork. <laughs> so being in the military, we shortened um, the green-eyed ghost of the Konar to the Gigak, which stayed his nickname. And I love that nickname. What's up, Gigak? Because <laughs> it just sounds stupid. Uh, don't give yourself a nickname and don't come up with your own because um, 
because it's bad. So uh, we were doing all that kinds of stuff and having fun with the locals and all that shit. And, and you know, it went well into um, into June, and that's when the uh, Operation Red Wings went down and Lone Survivor. And that's a, that's a different story for different people to tell. I was involved with that. But uh, that's the sort of stuff we did in Afghanistan on my first deployment. And then, you know, we went back and forth. And um, by back and forth, I mean Afghanistan and then Iraq and then Afghanistan and then Iraq and then Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. And we, and we, we, um, we got a lot of combat experience in Iraq, especially because we started out west and there was just uh, Al-Qaeda found out again because we invaded Iraq, that it's a lot easier to kill Americans in Iraq than it is Afghanistan. For every reason, it's difficult to get into Afghanistan because of the mountains. Iraq's right there. And a lot of the problems in some of these areas, not necessarily the locals, it's the foreign fighters that come in for jihad. It's, that's where the, a lot of the suicide bombers and, and the like come from. But we learned a lot in Iraq, but we went back to Afghanistan. The first, I mean, the, my first kill was in Iraq, not in Afghanistan. I, the, my first deployment there, I did see uh, the Air Force get kills with their jets, which is just fucking awesome. Um, I don't recommend being in gunfights, but if you are and you have a chance to call in Air Force uh, jets, it is it, uh, every joke we ever tell about the Air Force is fucking worth it because they're bad motherfuckers. If you can ever call in an Apache, oh my god, or 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 DAFs like the, the gunships, uh, uh, Cobras pilots are pilots are really fucking cool. And even though they get cocky, they they could be cockier because they are very fucking cool. I love that shit. But back and forth, and then you know we would. Um, we watched Afghanistan get built up, and then we became a strike team because uh, because Iraq was popping off. A lot of um, people, a lot of people wanted to go there, especially the bosses. So the bosses and most of Red Squadron, most of Gold, most of Blue, went out to uh, Iraq, and then we, well, my deployment in particular, we sent maybe an eight or nine of us to stay at Bagram, and then we're going to sit there um, and just see what happens and bounce from outstation to outstation because we did realize that we didn't need that many people for, you know, because when we were running an outstation in Jalalabad and Asadabad, they'd only bring down a couple guys. You only need a couple guys because you do have the locals. So most of our guys are fighting in Iraq. We went back to Afghanistan. We spent a lot of time in, in Kaust um, where we were running an outstation and we would, we would do Humvee operations to different spots. Um, and again, we did we did get kills. We did get in some fights. Not that many. The the best one that we got into, for me personally, was on Halloween, and this is in my book, The Operator. But it's one of my one of my favorite stories because, um, well, we had a dude, I had a dude with us that was a sniper, that um, he didn't he hadn't had a kill yet, and guys around him were getting kills, and he was getting anxious because he was very very aggressive. Um, but he didn't get a kill. He was just wrong place, wrong time. Um, and, 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 and then I was with Lance. Uh, Lance, who, who inevitably did die um, skydiving, uh, jumping a bundle. But he was with us too. And he's, uh, he's, um, we had what's called the Lance Factor, where Lance would get into some shit but never get hurt. There was always something that would happen. Like we would do a skydive, and it would, like right when we're in the air, it would start to hail. And now you're diving. I personally was diving without. Uh, because I'm the lead jumper, I didn't want any eye protection, so I'm jumping with a, an open face for six seconds because I, you know, I want to pull and then be able to see right away with my night vision. But I, you know, free falling for six seconds through hail is a pain in the ass. Like when you land, they like Lance would come up laughing. Oh, you look like you were wearing a beehive for a hat. But uh, so Lance would get into some shit like this. We we went out on um on a mission out of Kaust on Halloween. So the sniper who had never killed a guy was with me. 
and we entered a room. Now, we went into a room. There was three Al-Qaeda guys in there. The sniper was first, and then my buddy Reed was second, and then I was third. And as I came in, a fight started with the sniper and uh, one of the guys on the ground. So they're, they're in a fight, like a physical fight. And uh, because of the commotion, the two guys that were with them, I'm the three-man, the two guys that were with them had an opportunity to roll over and grab their guns. And I'm in a perfect spot. And that was the only time I ever got to say like a movie line. Um, so they're rolling over. It's Halloween. They grab their guns. And all I said was, trick or treat, motherfuckers. So I shoot them. So I get two kills right there. And uh, the sniper's looking at me. And he goes, God damn it, Nisro. That's me, Navy SEAL Robin Hill. God damn it, Nisro. You always get to shoot people. I never get to shoot people. And I said, uh, we'll throw him in uh, the middle of the room and shoot him. And the guy, he's, he got him in a headlock. The terrorist looks up and goes, no, no, sir. This is a bad idea. And I'm like, who's talking to you? Um, obviously, we didn't kill the guy, but it was, it was kind of, uh, kind of crazy. Uh, we did interrogate him, and he, he talked because he saw his two buddies dead. But outside, Lance is out there, and we have another sniper up on the roof. And Lance got attacked by a damn dog, a, a, a stray dog. But there's dogs everywhere. You'll find that in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. War zone. Dogs are always barking. I don't know. But Lance is outside, and this dog attacks him and is, is biting onto his leg. And uh, he's dancing around, and Lance came over his radio. This is all on Halloween. There's a gunfight going on, yet Lance is outside getting attacked by a dog. <laughs> he goes, can I shoot this thing? And everyone's kind of like, yeah. So he takes a shot, but the Lance factor, his gun jams. One shot goes off, and he gut shoots the dog. But the dog does not let go of Lance's leg, so he's still biting his leg, just got gut shot, and now he's yelping with a closed mouth around Lance's calf. So they're doing that. The kids see it. They're screaming and crying. The kids are sad. The dog's yelping. Lance is pissed, trying to clear a gem, and you hear the other sniper from the rooftop go, oh, son of a bitch, and so he shoots the dog off of Lance's leg. Uh, so the sniper that I was with in there, he, he didn't get a kill that night. Didn't get a kill, actually, the uh, entire deployment. We started giving him shit for it uh he did get a kill in iraq though uh i'm gonna fast forward to that because we were chasing we had a, one of our dogs with us we're chasing this dog down a down a, a a road to a house and he just darts into the side into these palm groves and that's where um al-qaeda would start to hide in iraq was in the palm groves they, they know we're coming to the house we're not going to check out there so toby was the dog at the time and he runs in there and he starts biting this guy and al-qaeda's in a fight and they start shooting back at us so we can hear 762 coming this way uh, we're shooting five, five, six back. The sniper that I was with that didn't have a kill, he's got an SR SR twenty five, which is a seven six two. We're all shooting five, five, six with suppressors. This is an SR twenty five. So the guy, the Al Qaeda guy that the dog is on, he's spinning around trying to shoot it, and all of a sudden we hear the sniper's gun go off. Boom! The guy's head explodes, and it's our sniper that finally got a kill. The entire thing, the entire gunfight stopped and quieted down to give our sniper that Hollywood moment. And we just hear him go, I'll be damned. <laughs> so that was his first kill in Iraq. But the Halloween mission was crazy because we, um, you know, I got to say my movie line, which is cheesy. And then uh, we shot the, well, the, the other sniper shot the dog off, off of, of Lance's leg. But that was a Halloween mission. And that's the kind of stuff that we did. Um, then we would go... Uh, we again, we'd go back and forth. I actually was able to augment um, Gold Squadron. A lot of the guys that actually were on Extortion One Seven, God bless them, um, which is the helicopter that got shot down a couple months after the Bin Laden raid. But I was able to augment them in Afghanistan one time. We flew over there. It's a winter deployment to Afghanistan, 
And uh, I'm I, I well, I went over there because it 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 coincided with reenlisting, just as luck would have it, so that I can reenlist in a tax free zone. Um, but I went over there to augment, and I, and I wanted to see their tactics because it's always good to you can learn from war, see what your opponent's doing, and then stay flexible. And then most importantly, go back and tell your guys how your opponent responded to what you're doing. It's like watching films in a game. So I went over to augment Gold Squadron. Now I mentioned Gold Squadron. And I mentioned them before how every squadron kind of had their reputations. And one thing that I learned from this group, especially at Gold Squadron, and believe me, they were complete fucking badasses. They were really good at what they did. Everything from the way they managed their gear to the way they trained overseas, how they kept in shape to the way they fought. I had never been in a gunfight with gold necessarily before, certainly not as one of the guys there with an entire squadron. And I was able to see this. And one of the things they did within the rules of engagement, though, a rule that they said, and they taught me and it helped me on later, helped me out later on. When you're in a high threat environment, um, the enemy has essentially less than a second to convince me not to kill him because everything moves fast. And when you're in combat, combat is not combat is very fast, it's very loud, it's very violent and it's permanent. And to see a suicide bomber up closer or, or a um an IED an improvised explosive device, it's fast and then that's it. It's loud and then it's that's that's the rest of your life whatever happens right there. So the enemy has less than a second to convince me um not to kill them. Uh, I also learned from them how important morale is. Uh, uh, every uh, you know, people are funny. Misery loves company. Gold team was very very funny. I love the way they treated each other. There was there was uh, all kinds of good morale. The boss uh, they actually called him the booze father. I loved it. Um, great guy. His boys loved him. They lo- he loved them. But I had a chance to work with him. And one of the missions that's, that's most notable for me was we had to insert uh, up on a mountain, and this is around January. My re-enlistment date, like I mentioned, con- conveniently enough, was right around January 28th, and I'm going to do a few missions with gold before I leave. We were going to insert on top of a, of a mountain, and the way we would do it is you, you insert, um, do you know, in this case, on one side of a mountain because it would, it would um, mask the sound of the, the Chinooks, which fly over there, the 47s, and then we'd walk over the mountain, go down into the, into the valley or whatever, the house that we were going to hit. And there was Al-Qaeda there. We knew it. But uh, it was just, when they inserted us, it was a spot where the pilot sort of held a hover, letting us out in the snow. And we didn't realize the snow was about five feet deep right there. And I'll, I'll never forget the gold team sniper. Um, it was, he was joking when he did this, but just gave us a really quick example of this is going to suck. Is he, we're watching him leave the ramp of the 47. He jumped out and immediately went up to his nipples in snow. And he turned around and he started uh, trying to climb back in. And he, jokingly, he was saying, I'm not going. I'm not going. Just joking. It was like a movie line or something. He turned around and left, and then um, we followed him, and it did suck. It sucked for a while, and uh, we were, um, you know, we walked up and over and in. Now, I, I've mentioned before, me personally, that I stopped carrying um, a pistol. I didn't, I didn't want to use a pistol because I thought, especially in Afghanistan, that it's a waste of weight. When you're in Afghanistan. Everything matters when you're climbing up those hills, those mountains, especially in the thin air. And ounces eventually turn into pounds. Um, And my thought was, this is a a weight. This is a dive weight that I'm carrying right now because if I'm in a house, in a gunfight, and the way that you're supposed to use 
a secondary a pistol is if and when, which happens, especially with Lance and the fucking dog. Um, if your primary goes down, the way you're supposed to deal with it in training is you ditch your primary, you go for your secondary, and you're back in the fight. What I learned, and you know, like I said, you're kind of, you're gambling with everything. That if I'm in, I've seen it before. If my gun goes down, my buddy already killed him. So I'm carrying this pistol now. If I need a gun in the open in Afghanistan, and I, all I have is a pistol, I might as well be throwing the pistol or rocks at them because they have AK-47s, they have PKMs, belt-fed machine guns. This is doing nothing. So if my gun is down, I need to get that gun back up. I need to get a rifle back up. And I've, I, you know, I've had experience before where one of the worst feelings in the world is having someone shoot at you with effective fire that can reach you, but yours can't reach them. So I started carrying, instead of a pistol, I started carrying what's called a rapid rod, which um, you pull it out, and it's, I mean, it's someone smart invented it. You can snap it. It's kind of like taking apart a fishing pole, but you pull it out, and you've got a rod, and it was already pre-staged with, um, with um, something to punch the bore. Because if I need my gun, instead of pulling a pistol, I need to get my gun back up. That's my thinking. And this came in, in, in handy here. We, after the horrible insert into the, into the um, abyss of snow, we went to this town. We split it up. And I'm, again, I'm augmenting, so I'm not the guy entering. I'm, I'm kind of watching. What does gold do? And hopefully I can bring some tactics back to red. And just so we all know, we're all going to teach each other. We're all, um, you know, maybe I can help someone with something that I saw in the snow. But a gunfight inevitably started. So the, guns, the fight's going off. It gets exciting. And um, we took fire from one side. I'm with two dudes from gold, which is fine. We're sort of setting a perimeter. And I slipped. And um, I had already taken a shot. So I used to carry, uh, you, you know, you can use a condom and tape, or you can just use tape or, or um, a baggie. You want to tape up your bore because if you slip like I just did, you don't want your bore to go in the snow. I had taken a shot, so now my... my um, the, the stuff I have on the end of my gun to make sure I don't fill it with snow was off, and I slipped, and I jammed my gun into the snow. The barrel wasn't necessarily hot because I only took a couple shots at a dude, but uh, it was enough to get the snow in there and sort of make it softer, but then because of the cold, it froze. So now I've got uh, a, a barrel full of ice or snow, which you don't want to shoot with that for obvious reasons. It'll hit it. Uh, everything going on with the ballistics will blast your barrel. Now you're fucking out of guns, and you better be really good at jujitsu or something. But I, I took it off, and I remember just, I think this is one of the reasons why you've seen those, like, major pain, <laughs> do, you know, taking your gun apart with uh, while you're in gravity boots or your feet up on a pull-up bar as you're blindfolded. You would like, you think it's kind of stupid. You need to take apart your gun the right way, especially when someone's shooting at you, you're in a gunfight. And I actually had to take that um, that rapid rod out and pull. I mean, I you know, I didn't take the gun completely apart, but I took it to a point where I'm going to lift it up. Now I could take the the guts of the gun out and know where they are. You better make sure you fucking know where they are. And uh, I got to jam it down there. I cleared it out, got the thing back in there. And, you know, we got in the fight and... Uh, Obviously, I'm with gold team, so they won the fucking fight. And then uh, that, that was the lesson, though, that I had always been saying, I don't need a pistol. I do need a rod. So carry a rod. Make sure you know how your gun works. Make sure you can take it apart and do a function check. Make sure that fucker works because uh, if you need it, you need it, and you need it now. So we got back from that fight, and this is, just another, uh, this is just another fun story. So this is Afghanistan. I didn't mention this. Sorry, we're in Kandahar. Uh, so not Jalalabad. We're down in Kandahar, and that's where a lot of fighting was. That's, that's back when they let us fight the Taliban and, you know, we're still at a point where we want to fight, so we're fighting the Taliban. We get back on base, and we go to the chow hall. And the way that we worked is we would 
go out on missions at night, and then when we get back, you have dinner, but dinner is breakfast for everyone else. And I mentioned my in my book, The Operator, that there are things that we called fobbits. Because uh, a fob is a forward operating base, and a fobbit is like a hobbit. It never leaves the base. It's a... Let me caveat this. Everyone that put their right hand up and swore an oath to the country has a part in the job. But I am going to give you a little bit of shit because the fobbits on base, the remps, the rear echelon motherfuckers, didn't uh, necessarily get in fights. They're still in a war zone, but they also bought up all the magazines at the PX, and it's hard to find the good shit because as soon as it gets delivered, they bought it, and they have their clean uniforms. Like, we'd be in the chow hall, and you'd watch the guys in their clean uniforms that yell at people for not having a hat, even though he's covered with with dirt and piss and blood and shit. Um, we were sitting at this um, at a table where there's a bunch of us sitting at a at a um, a picnic table inside of a tent. Uh, it's the chow hall, and we started to take mortars. Now this tent is surrounded by by hescos and by um, by uh, um, cement barriers, right? You're fine unless it comes right through the damn uh, thing. But we're in there with a bunch of guys that just got in a fight, a bunch of rangers, and they're pissed off. We're tired or whatever but all these clean cut guys are in there eating too and uh they they're you know the mortars start hitting outside and they all jump under their picnic table and um one of the rangers looks over at him and he gives him shit he says look guys we're surrounded by barriers uh the only way we're gonna get hit is if one comes through the roof and your fucking picnic table's not gonna stop it sit up like a man enjoy your salisbury steak <laughs> which i thought was hilarious uh, and then I flew back, and I'm, uh, you know, I got a gunfight, got a nice reenlistment bonus. I'm back at Bagram, and I can see what's happening at Bagram. It's getting built up. Bagram is to a point now where it just exists to support itself. Like it's got speed limits. People get pulled over trying to get on missions by the MPs because you went past the five mile an hour speed limit, whatever the shit it is. Um, my story up there was fun. I we're just in a gunfight that day. We have the Salisbury steak during the mortar thing. And then I fly up to Bagram. And I'm by myself. I'm living in the old hooches that we used to live in. So I'm hanging out. I kind of know the deal. And I know where the chow hall. Now there's a good chow hall. Now there's like the army's taking care of itself. The self-licking ice cream cone is all great. It's doing whatever. Full of hobbits. So I'm, uh, I'm walking across the street. I leave the super top secret SEAL Team 6 JSOC base, whatever the shit they call it, the Death Star, the fucking Death Star. We're not that cool. I'm walking across the thing to go get some... Now, there's some really good chow up here, but I get stopped by this uh, specialist, by this E4 MP, and because I'm not wearing a reflective belt, and a reflective belt is something that you wear so that if someone sees you, it reflects off their headlights, which to me kind of just makes the entire war effort ironic because if we're in a war zone why I'm, I'm wearing camouflage yet i have a reflective belt on do i want the enemy to see me or not or do i want to just stand out so they know who to shoot at, uh, shoot at so anyway he stops me and he goes where's your reflective belt and i said i don't have one where do i get one and he said you can get one at the px for like three bucks and i said huh here i am thinking safety's free but it isn't it's three bucks. And there's an awkward, like, silence. And he said, well, I'm going to have to cite you for this. So he wrote me a ticket um, for not wearing a reflective belt. And he handed it to me. And I said, uh, all right, um, where do I pay this? And he said, well, you don't. You just get it. And I said, so I get, uh, so I get a free ticket 
for not wearing a reflective belt? And he said, yes. And I said, okay. Then I ripped it up and I said, write me another free ticket. And I threw it over my shoulder and I said, for littering. And I start to walk off and he went to stop me and I said, hey, brother, um, when you call home, when you call your mom and tell you what's going on over here, you lie, right? Like you don't tell her that you're over here writing tickets to people for not wearing a reflective belt. And he agreed. And I went and had, I think, probably more Salisbury steak because you just can't get enough of that good-ass army Salisbury steak. But you can sort of see where the problems are, are going there. We're getting too big. We've lost sight of what we're doing. We're trying to put democracy in a place where they don't want it. We're trying to build schools where they don't want it. And we're, we're getting back into the problem with mission creep like we did in Vietnam. What are we doing there? The Gulf of Tonkin happened when we were attacked allegedly by the Vietnamese, so we better invade, and that turns into uh, reunifying the North and South, North Vietnam and South Vietnam. And I'm like, I'm convinced right now there are people so dumb in our government that I'm surprised they haven't tried to reunite the Dakotas or the Carolinas. But you can see it happening. And, and so we, um, we would go back to Afghanistan. The last, the last deployment I did before the bin Laden raid, I was a senior, one of the senior enlisted guys, and I was um, sort of running the outstations, all of them from the base in Jalalabad, where it all started for me. And uh, again, just looking around and seeing what's happening. Now I'm on a CIA base. The strike force is also... Uh, on the same base, but the CIA built a spot where it looks like a European resort at this point. There's all kinds of conventional forces there. We got the strike force on the other side of the base. We have a place with like, a, there's a manicured lawn uh, out front. There's uh, yoga studios and shit. We had um, barracks rooms with our own showers, like a hotel, like a European hotel. For some reason, they can never quite figure out the toilets. It didn't matter. It always seemed like everywhere we went, the toilets wouldn't quite work. Like you'd flush, but you're going to do some some blue-collar manual labor with a little elbow grease. But it's building it up to a point where it's like, what are we even doing here? Not, not that, I don't want to broad brush stroke everyone. There are people that had the mission in mind, and we didn't know the Bin Laden crew was actually working Bin Laden, and we would eventually launch from, from that airfield. But, I mean, there was a point now where it's so full of bureaucrats. You got people sitting there in your briefs from like the State Department that are picking apart words you might have used out of context. What about this word here when you're you're not focusing on the mission? There there was a time where you know we we would share intelligence with the agency, but some some people in the CIA their biggest problem is they watch too many movies about the CIA, and you, you know you're not as cool as you think you are. They they, they now they were really good at giving themselves nicknames. Like, uh, hey, I'm Rob. They'd be like, hey, I'm Knife. It's like, oh, hey, Knife. How's your espresso? Um, there was a dude, like, you would meet these guys with these badass nicknames, knowing they're just table jockeys uh, working on computers. They're the guys that yell at you now on uh, Twitter. They're the uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinmans, those guys. That's who they are. Like, there was one dude one time that I finally thought had a cool nickname. I was like, hey, I'm Rob, or I'm Nizro. And he goes, hey, I'm Goat. I'm like, Goat. And this is before the greatest of all time. I just thought it was cool. You're calling yourself the GOAT. He's like, yeah, it stands for goes after terrorists. Like, oh, I guess douchebag was taken. Uh, anyway, we're over there and I'm dealing, like we would have our intel meetings and then we do, and then the CIA would have their secret meeting. And I guess we would try to have ours because we want to be cool too. And one of our sources said, uh, 
Uh, then a lot of people now they're just they're putting people in positions of power so they can advance. So we got people running stations, running bases because they need you know they came from the South American station. Now they got to run Afghanistan, so they have a combat deployment so they can get advanced. That's what it, it, it all comes down to personal power. Um, and we went into the chief of base at this uh, agency. This agency guy, chief of base, he's running the show, and I said, hey, there's an issue. One of our intel sources told us that there's a blonde American that leaves this base through that gate, which is their secret gate, um, and goes to a spot. They knew where it was, and this is where she she's a case officer, and she goes to meet her source out in town in Jalalabad. And uh, Al-Qaeda is aware of her. They've seen her in the up-armored Suburban, which, again, too, if you're driving an up-armored Suburban, a bulletproof Suburban in Jalalabad, you might be an American. Uh, we found it's easier sometimes to hide in plain sight, but we said, yeah, they're aware of her. They know the two big big bearded guys, one drives and one's in front. They know where you stop. What they're going to do is they're going to kill them, the two bearded guys at first, and they're going to kidnap her, the blonde American. And they described her to a T, what she looks like, and then they're going to have a suicide bomber waiting behind for when the quick reaction force shows up. We'll blow that up. They'll be distracted by that, and then we'll have that... Uh, the blonde American girl. We told the chief of base this, and he said, nah, that can't be us. Our tradecraft is way too strong. And we wanted to say, well, no, we literally just described exactly what's going to happen. And nope, can't be us. And just the, just the blinders are on because we're too cool. That's a problem. And that's that's where we saw the war kind of going. The last mission that we that I did, this is right before the Bin Laden raid, um, we, we, some super secret guys grabbed uh, a terrorist out of the Korangal Valley, one of the last Al-Qaeda guys in there, Abu Iklas al-Masri, I think was his name. And we tried to set up a really simple, um, um, you know, grab and go. He's going to he's gonna grab these dudes, and um, they're going to bring him to us. We're going to meet him in a highway, and you stop here, and I'll stop there. We It turned into a complete shit show because everybody got scared. I ended up hopping out. I Thank God I had rubber gloves on because as I was uh, checking this dude for suicide bombs, I pretty sure I put a finger up his ass, and that was bad. But he didn't have a bomb on him. So, you know, that's the little stuff we're doing, but we're seeing the way the war is going. And, um, you know, that's it. And, and Bin Laden was a ghost at this time. But but we did get back home um, from that deployment, and we got briefed on Bin Laden. We got Bin Laden, and that was the highest point um, of Afghanistan. And then we had the lowest point. I was working after the Bin Laden raid down at Fort Bragg at Joint Special Operations Command on August 6, 2011. I had my TV on. I fell asleep in my room. The TV was on. They said there was a, a crash in Afghanistan very early in the morning for us, but I drove in, and I was hearing about it, and I typed on my computer at JSOC over to Afghanistan and what just happened. And um, they sent uh, an email back to me just with a list of the, uh, the, the the flight manifest, who was on it, and just going down the list of these dudes from Gold Team that are not replaceable. Um, Rob Reeves, Heath Robinson, Lou Langos, Kevin Houston. Brian Bill, I can name all of them. Mad Mills, going down the list of the the people that that were on there it was just a, a just a devastating blow. Where, you know, you go from planning missions to planning funerals, and so we lost them. Going, they were going after a target in the Tangy Valley, Afghanistan, where at the time it was a big target. Whatever the hell his name was, Objective Lefty Grove. Um, but we lost all those guys because you know they got hit by an RPG, and that'll be another. I obviously wasn't in Afghanistan for that. Um, but I did go back to Afghanistan to to backfill them because we lost so many people in, in, in that troop, in two troop. They called it Lou Troop after Lou Langlis. That, um, you know, we need to send guys over there so we can we can refill it. Um, 
do whatever. So I went back. I, I actually did one more deployment with Silver Squadron this time. Silver Silver was a, a squadron that was made when uh, we were restructuring both commands, being Delta and uh, SEAL Team 6, and they were going to make another squadron. And this is actually pretty funny. The reason it became Silver Squadron, and if you look at it, I got actually the headhunter right here. You'll see that you can sort of see it here. It's a, it's a skull for Blue Squadron. And you can see the sword for Gold Squadron and the cross tomahawk for Red Squadron. It's called the Headhunter because we took guys from Red, Blue, and Gold. But the reason they call it Silver is uh, no kidding because when the rumor came up that there's a new squadron coming about, what are we going to name it? The guys from Gold Squadron started saying, well, it's going to be Silver Squadron. And we were like, why is it going to be Silver? And they said, well, because Silver's good, but it's not as good as Gold. So they did become Silver Squadron. Uh, I went over there with them. Uh, got to got to work with some former guys I worked with at um, Red, uh, some some new guys, some guys that were plank owners of Silver, and then uh, some guys from the other squadrons had a had a good winter deployment. Uh, got to do a lot of stuff there, but you're, we're sort of realizing that a lot of the missions we're doing now were just because we're bored. I remember a mission we walked. Uh, we there were known mines in the area, but we're going to walk to this house and take it down. And it's, and it's almost like looking around, like guys, what are we? Why are we doing this? We we we've completely taken our eye off the ball in Afghanistan. the The last mission I ever did though was a, was a good one. It was, uh, and this also tells you where our head was tactically because we've got people in place now. There's there's so many people involved with this huge war that you know. It, we should have invaded. It, it, it war is so complex. Like uh, when the, the people that say, well, this will be the next Vietnam are always the same people that make sure it's the next Vietnam. And that's just it. We, we, we lost sight of it. But the last one we did, so we have people that are basically in charge that have never been in gunfights before, that don't understand what it's all about. Um, we had a target. This group of Mujahideen Taliban were on one side of a mountain. They're watching it in one of these valleys, and it was on the side of a mountain in a small village. They would get in the car every morning. They'd go around this mountain, and they drive down this secluded road that no one's ever on, and they wait by a, a sort of a major road, and they're waiting for Americans to drive by so they can ambush them. And we watched them. The, the intel guys alerted us. And then no, nobody came, so this is like a Monday. So they went back. And that's when they alerted us. So we watched them on Tuesday. Same shit. Guys came out of this vehicle, or this house, went into a vehicle, went around the mountain, stopped. Nobody came for a couple hours. They went back to the house. So we're like, well, Wednesday. They did it again Wednesday. And so now we're coming up with a concept of operations. And we said, okay, um, if they do this on Friday, which is their day of prayer, they're definitely going to do it on Saturday, right? So sure enough, on Friday, they did the whole thing. Came back. They're going to do it Saturday. Okay, now we got to hit these guys. They're, they're a threat to somebody. They're armed. We see their RPGs. So we came up with a very, very simple plan. Keep it simple. Our plan was, and we briefed an officer, an Army officer who's going to give us the permission. And we said, here's what we're going to do. Here's how it went down. We came up with a very simple plan. We're going to do an L ambush, which I thought was awesome. I've never done an L ambush. This is some straight-up old-school shit. And you're going to, you know, it's designed to kill the bad guys. So we told this officer, he's a junior officer, and we said, uh, we're going to insert here by the 47s. We're going to walk about a eh, click and a half in because we know these guys leave this house, come around the south of the mountain, drive across this road. We're going to walk to right here. We're going to hide. Like We're going to put my team beside, behind these rocks. We're going to line up some other guys, you know, to the north of the road. And as soon as they get to a spot, we're going to have the air assets above us. 
they're going to, we're going to be simple. The aircraft are going to tell us green light, yellow light, red light. That's going to be the three pro words. Green means they're going, yellow means they're close, red means stop. We're going to jump out from behind these rocks and I am going to be in the base element. I'll be the team leader for this, the base element of an L ambush. And we got him right where we want him. And that's where the officer stopped us. And he said, what's an L ambush? And I said, as respectfully as I could, an L ambush should be the second thing that you learn after you join the Army. The first thing you learn is there's your bed, that's your rack. The second thing is this is an L ambush. And I sort of explained how it works. And he said, who invented this? And I said, I think a guy by the name of Sun Tzu invented it when he wrote The Art of War, which you should have read in whatever college you, you went to, which obviously wasn't West Point or whatever. And he said, well, what, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to stop the car. And he goes, what if you don't stop them? I, I said, he said, what if they don't stop? And I said, then I'm going to shoot them. It, it's pretty simple. And, and that's something else that reminds me when, uh, when you see movies or whatever, read books, and they always say you want to shoot the engine block, shoot the engine block, disable the car. I call bullshit on that. The easiest way to stop a car is to shoot the fucking driver. Simple. So we, I don't know how they agreed to it, but we knew we were going to insert in the dark. They've been coming around, you know, after first light when the sun's coming up. So we have time. We actually brought cigars. So we're smoking cigars behind this rock, and the air assets are watching this thing. Hey, here's how Murphy works. Murphy's law. If, you know, if something bad can happen, it's going to happen, and your plan never works the way it's supposed to plan. These guys are supposed to come out of the car, out of the house, get into the car after they load their shit into the trunk, their RPGs and their fucking machine guns. Get in the car, start it up, and drive like they do every fucking day we've been watching them, but this is Saturday. So we are got our cigars lit up, and they give us whatever pro word it is for their... Uh, getting in their car. Their car won't start. Now, their car has started every single day. Not today, because we're waiting for them. So this just means, well, we don't, we're not going to put our cigars out by any means. We're just going to set them down, because it's a good cigar, I think. Because you can get Cubans in, in Afghanistan, I've heard. But um, it won't start. And so we're like, what the shit, man? Come on, it's got to start. We're going to be here all day. Um, it finally starts. I think they did a rolling start where you put it in second, whatever. I don't know. They Boom, they popped it. They're in the car. There's three assholes in the back and two in the front. Now they're driving to us. And no car has been on this road all week except for this car. So we're fired up. We're about to do an L ambush. And even if you don't get in a shootout, it's going to be exciting because you jump out, you're pointing guns, you're yelling at people. It's going to be exciting. My last mission, I'm pumped. We're getting, we get the red, or sorry, we get the, um, the green light, meaning they're a couple, like a thousand meters away they're driving. And then this goddamn van full of kids and a woman comes driving right through us. So we're standing there. We're not quite in our spot yet, but a van's there. Now imagine if you get excited, you start going hot, and you shoot the driver. Oops, that's mom. Fuck, why are they here? I don't know. Where'd they come from? I don't know. It just They're just here. So now we kind of jump back to our hiding spots, take another puff off the cigar. We get yellow light there right there, and then red light. So we jump out now, and now the car's right there. And it's like this, this little gray four-door two-wheel drive sedan or some shit, right? And I hop out. I So I'm in the middle. I'm pointing my gun at the driver. I got a guy over here, and he, he's got a great job because we call him the line of death. And that means if anyone jumps out and starts running to him, boom, line of death, you shoot him. So I'm looking at this guy. He looked at me, and, I'm, and uh, I hear him hit the, hit the, he puts it in reverse and hits it, 
hits the gas and the, the tires are spinning out. And he said, I think his first five words ever in English, I could hear him through the windshield. He said, fuck, 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 fuck. Just like that. And I'm looking at, now we have snipers set up and they have 300 Winchester Magnums. And they're eh, 200 yards away. And with a sniper, that's basically which nostril do I want to put this through? So I'm looking at him and I go, hey, brother, get out of the car. Get out of the car. Homie, get out of the car. And I'm sort of telling him, you you better get out of the car. And I'm trying to explain, as I'm saying this, the passenger hops out. He's got a gun. He's going to the back. This dude's head explodes because the snipers go hot. Now they're shooting. So I start shooting. We're all blasting this up. The guys got out. We... um, End up smoking all five of them. This is after the Bin Laden raid, too. So I'm thinking, wow, that that guy just got killed with the gun that killed Bin Laden. This is weird. Um, everything's smoking. There's some pictures out there. That's the one where I have a Boston Red Sox hat on, that, that beanie. It's cold. I, I got body armor and a big old coat and stuff. And uh, we're dealing with, uh, it was a pretty big gunfight. A lot of shots were fired. We did have Afghans with us because we have Afghans with us on every mission because we had to lie to the powers that be and say that every mission we do is an Afghan-led mission. And that's part of the bullshit with, uh, oh, Afghanistan can take over because they've been leading the missions the whole time. Complete bullshit. You bring guys with... Bringing an Afghan uh, onto a target like this is kind of like bring your daughter to work day if you're in an office. It's like they come in and you give them a marker and they go over to the... uh, the, the whiteboard and they just color. I'm helping, Daddy. It's like, you're sure helping. So anyway, we're, we're out there. We're doing a sensitive site exploitation on this car. We're finding all kinds of shit, whatever. When this, this one Afghan comes up, he's got a warhead, one of the RPGs. He's holding it. There's a fucking bullet hole in the RPG. It's like a shape charge, but there's explosives in there. And he's like, Mr. Rob, Mr. Rob, we're like, Jesus, put that it's over there. And so he did. Anyway, that was, a, that was my last mission in Afghanistan. And uh, we, you know, we flew out. That was it. Um, got out of the Navy um, in, in August of 2012. My time in Afghanistan was done. All kinds of interesting shit like that happened. And then, you know, get out in the civilian world, do that stuff. And then fast forward to now, um, a year ago, we watched the botched withdrawal. And it's easy to Monday morning quarterback everything. And they do. And, and um, you know, if they, we, that was a terrible way to come out because you're, you've got politics involved. You've got politicians that want their next term. And the Biden administration's goal was to have everyone out of Afghanistan on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And that's what they wanted. And, and now this isn't on the, the, the complete shit show that was Afghanistan, was on every administration. And not just the presidents, but everyone involved. Um, just with decisions that were made. Because we're too nice at, uh, at killing people. We, we don't just strike and leave. We should have gone in, hit them hard, said, no, don't ever do this again. Should have done that, didn't do that. We surged, we surged, we always surge. We keep people there, we lose focus. And then on the way out, it was so quick. Um, you know, we never should have invaded Iraq, but we never should have left Iraq. You know, we invaded for personal reasons. We left, we formed ISIS. And we, we should not have built up Afghanistan the way we did, but we did. Now, what do we do with it? What I think we should have done is, um, you know, keep the airfield at Jalalabad, keep the airfield at Bagram so that you can have people there and have a deployment. Bagram got to the point where you have, um, you're, you're still hiring locals, you still have security on it, and um, um, pilots can pilots can work and they can be back. There was karaoke night. They can be back for karaoke night, green bean coffee. But you don't just give it up to them. You certainly don't leave all the stuff behind. There are certain things that we could have done. You never give the enemy a timeline. We should have known we're going to eventually negotiate with the Taliban, but you don't just give it back to them. 
because now it's worse than it was. I mean, even before on uh, uh, before September 11th, at least the Northern Alliance was fighting the Taliban up north, um, and we could we sort of work with them. But now they're gone. Afghanistan is, uh, you know, we we ran out. We have battle fatigue now. We don't want to fight. China's watching. They moved in. And they're taking everything. We could have done it a different way. We did it. We didn't. And even at, at the end, we had 13 soldiers outside the base in a predictable, preventable attack. The attack was so bad that um, killed 13 people. One of the brothers of one of the Marines that was killed there just killed himself at the memorial for his brother because he was so... Th- th- I mean, this destroyed families. It's, it's just a horrible thing that happened. It's a horrible way to get out. We're, we got to the point with bureaucracy that we're sending in civilians who used to be soldiers, used to be special forces, using their contacts, making phone calls while they're on vacation to other people trying to get to the gates. So bad that people are holding on to C-17s they're taking off. Imagine how desperate you got to be to hold on to a jet and then just fall off to your death because you're going to live under the Taliban rule again. And we fucked it up. We fucked it up because um, we let the government get involved. Why, why do we think that we let the government get involved? Everything the government touches turns to shit. It's, it's, it seems like the same thing every time. They say this is going to be another Vietnam War, and then it turns into another Vietnam War, and then everyone, same names are still out there saying, what an outrage, I can't believe this was happening. Because everyone's bullshitting everyone else for personal reasons, and then we, you know, we turn into this complete shit show. And the government's been doing it the whole time. I mean, uh, it's, just, it's a shitty thing. Politics gets involved, and uh, that's part of the change that needs to happen. Um, we went in for the right reasons. We left for the wrong reasons. We should have gone, you know, could have, should have, would have. Uh, it's always um, it always comes down to that, but the, yeah, the debacle was there. It was a year ago. It's sad to see it happen, and and um, hopefully it doesn't happen again. But um, just because we're done with Afghanistan doesn't necessarily mean we're done with us. Just because we're done with Afghanistan doesn't mean they're done with us. I guess if, if that makes any sort of sense. But um, for some reason, we want to keep the government involved, and that's what they're doing. And then we'll take our eye off of that. Um, so uh, you know, it's important to stay vigilant. It's important to see what's real, know what's real. Um, and that was uh, that was Afghanistan in a in a nutshell, but that is a lot of my experience in Afghanistan. Uh, a little bit about the withdrawal, how it went bad. I, I uh, there were some amazing people um, that used to fight in Afghanistan that organized through their contacts how to get people out. A lot of our bureaucrats were screwing it up. Um, I'm I'm hoping to get some people on there with with intimate experience of what happened with the withdrawal, how they were getting people out, how they're still getting people out, um, because. Uh, you know, you got to realize what's important, and it's important to a lot of these people. We've got to stay vigilant, um, you know, with what's going on in the world, what we're really doing, looking at our borders, considering uh, the Second Amendment, what the government's trying to do, stuff like that. So, uh, you know, stay on top of it, and uh, remember that you're never out of the fight.